At the Association of the U.S. Army Conference just concluded, topics range from international strategy to the health and well-being of individual soldiers and their families. One issue has been housing. Another is spouse employment. For an update on both of those issues, I caught up with the Deputy Commander of the Army's Installations Management Command, Major General Omar Jones. Well, I will tell you, we were, as a military, but specifically for the Army, we were in a tough situation about three years ago in the winter of 19, and all really kind of came to a head. But, Tom, I'll tell you where we are now, and I'll tell you how we got here. We're in a very good position right now. What we learned from the housing crisis that struck us in early February 19, and it was many years in the making, was that we needed to embrace our partners even closer. We needed to move forward. We, we represent the government. You know, we take care of our people, our soldiers, our family members, our civilians that are living in the houses, and to make sure that they have safe, quality housing that they deserve. And what we have done is we've increased the oversight. We have strengthened the partnerships with our privatized partners that are out there that run the housing for us. Our partners have invested well over a billion dollars just in the past three years to improve the quality of the homes. There's approximately 87,000 homes in the Army that are privatized, all stateside, not overseas. And we have a plan that by the end of the decade, every single one of those 87,000 homes will either be new or renovated. So we'll have hands-on to make sure it's, again, at the right quality, safe, at the right standard. We approved responsiveness, so when people do have a problem in the house, that they're getting folks that are going to come out and they're going to fix that problem in an appropriate, reasonable amount of time. And just the communication, communication, keeping the residents informed. I will tell you, every single Monday, either myself or my commander, Lieutenant General Doug Gabram, meets, we review every single family in the Army who is displaced. And it usually is about 50 out of 87,000, and those are planned. Maybe it's a, a pipe that bursts or something, but making sure those families get taken care of throughout the process to get them back in their homes. And then we sit down every week with one of the partners, and we go through every single one of the installations we partner with them, and we go through how responsive they're being to maintenance requests, how quickly they're able to get a house ready for the next occupants to move in, and then what's the long-term plan? to make sure that the quality we have today is what we have in five and ten years. So we learned a lot, but I'm happy with where we are, and I'm much happier with where we're going. And it sounds like you have kind of a dashboard almost to be Absolutely. able to see what's going on across Absolutely. the board there. We do. You know, by partner, by installation, however you want to look at it, to make sure, make sure we can see ourselves and that we can anticipate a problem and fix it well before it impacts our soldiers and families. Now, does this any of this spill over into the barracks, which are the... Army-owned types of facilities. It it does. And as you've heard the Army leadership talk for the past few years and then absolutely here this week, the Army's number one priority is people. You know, the, the Army doesn't work without people. And investing in our people and the quality of life of our people is key to their readiness, key to taking care of their families, key to attracting Americans to want to raise their hand and join the Army. And one of those quality of life initiatives is our barracks. And we have put significant effort into making sure that, again, it's the right quality, just like we've done for our family housing, the right quality in the barracks, that maintenance is responsive and it's the right quality when they come in and they fix things. We actually have an application now that I've been talking about the past couple days where a soldier can take a picture of a problem they have in the barracks, post it in the app. Maintenance comes out. They've already seen the picture. They know what to do. Go to the Army Maintenance app, and they can fix it right there on the spot while keeping the soldier informed. So, again, being responsive to their needs across the board. But also, as we look over the 10 years of investment, as we look at all facilities across the Army, the number one type of facilities we're investing in is our barracks. 
so we can take care of those single soldiers and making sure that it's a quality place that they want to live, that they can call home and be proud of while they're living in the barracks. Yeah, I understand I'm probably the last to realize this. That my <laughs> idea of barracks dated back to 1980s drill sergeant movies. Yeah. A little it's different really now. nothing like that anymore. <laughs> it, is it? It, is, it is not. The new standards that's been approved by the, uh, the sergeant major of the Army on behalf of the Army leadership is what we call 4 plus 2. So it's you know four soldiers each have their own rooms, but it's a suite together, two bathrooms, latrines that are in there, but they are individual bathrooms. So that way, it is much more like what you would find in an apartment or something. Still, it's military barracks. You know, standards are expected, but it's where our soldiers live, and we want to make sure they've got a good, safe, quality uh, room in the barracks. All right, yeah. and getting back to the housing issue is families. Mm-hmm. Families means spouses. It does. Still yeah. mostly female, but a growing number mm-hmm. of male spouses yeah. in the Army. And give us an update on the spouse employment situation. Yeah. This seems to be something that is so important to quality of life and something that, yeah. again, across the military yeah. has been a struggle for yeah. so many years as the change of duty yeah. stations happens. And, and, and Tom, it is. I, I graduated from West Point in 1992, so I'm coming up on 30 years in the Army this next spring. And when I look at how much the Army has changed, and and I think candidly in very positive ways over those three decades, one of them has been that there are a lot more spouses that are working today than were working in 1992. And that's across uh, America, but definitely for this conversation, for the military and for the Army. The Army does have unique challenges because we do move so often. It's to make sure that you know, the Army at Fort Bragg is the same thing at the Army at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, same thing as the Army at Fort Riley. Wherever you go, standards, how we operate, how we work together, all of those things should be the same. It's the United States Army. But the other side of the moving is the impact on our people and the impact on our families. And we spend a lot of time trying to reduce that impact. That's one more of the quality of life initiatives is making the permanent change of station experience better. But a key piece is, is for the spouses. You know, how are they able to find them if they desire employment, but if they desire employment, how can the Army help them with that transition? And we've got offices in Army Community Services so that even before a spouse leaves the losing installation, they can reach out to the gaining installation and say, this is the type of work I'm doing. This is the type of certifications I have. How can you help me either before or definitely when I get there so I can continue to be employed? And and the Army has, has invested in that to make sure that spouse's ability to have the kind of job they want to have with the potential for advancement that they want to have doesn't become a choice. It doesn't become a choice between the spouse and the soldier. It is something that the soldier can have a successful military career and the spouse can pursue his or her career in parallel. My wife works, and we, we balance that as well. She's a school counselor here in Maryland, and we balance that as well as she works through how to you know, work in the school system and, and serve families in that capacity while I'm serving in uniform. And counseling is a good example for one of the issues, and that is recognition of certifications and licensing in yes. one state by yeah. other states. And has yeah. there been, and that goes everything from yeah. school counselors, which is a you know, high-level profession to, you know, nail salons where yep. you need a license. And so has there been progress on that front? There has been, and that's clearly a continuing, ongoing conversation between local jurisdictions, the states, and, um, you know, the federal government in some cases. But the key for our families is that the Army is advocating for them. And where the Army can cut through red tape, where the, when the Army can help set conditions for certification mobility between different states, between different installations, the Army is there to help with that. You know, I, I think if we'd had this conversation, you know, 30, 40 years ago, probably wouldn't have talked about what is the Army doing. The Army seizes part of our responsibility to take care of our people to help the spouses with that mobility. 
We're speaking with Major General Omar Jones, Deputy Commanding General of the Installations Management Command. And what can you tell us about the upcoming permanent change of station season? It's been rough for a couple of years (laughs) given the pandemic. It has been. And the Army made a number of changes with support from the Department of Defense to make it easier. Things such as increase the incentive to do the move on your own. You used to get about 80% of the cost you would get back. Now it's 100%. So if you decide, and it's a choice, but you want to do the move on your own, you'll get 100% reimbursement for all those costs. On your own means you hire a U-Haul you and do. move all your junk you in there. And exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, but even if you your do... cinder blocks and your Kenwood receiver. <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, but you know, even if you do a partial, meaning that even just load things in your own vehicle, the military will pay you for any of the move that you do on your own, whether it's some or all. But also report dates. You know, where you know, a soldier will get a report date. You have to report to your new installation on the, on the 1st of August, for example. If we can't set conditions with the movers, if we can't set conditions with the housing, child care, whatever, there's flexibility to shift those report dates at the local level. They can make those decisions. Army Major General Omar Jones, Deputy Commander of the Installations Management Command. There's much more to the interview. We'll post it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, 
and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where what you can do to help them. Uh, I we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? 
Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.